The Art Newspaper Weekly Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, where the historic and modern are equally valued. Hello, I'm Ben Luke, and for this week's Art Newspaper Podcast, I'm in Trafalgar Square in London, where later I'll be speaking to Michael Rakowitz. His sculpture, based on an ancient Assyrian winged bull destroyed by Islamic State, is about to occupy the fourth plinth here. But first, the art of Tibet. Thomas Laird is an American photographer and writer who, since 1972, has depicted and described the culture of the Himalayas for publications including Time, Newsweek and National Geographic. Laird has spent part of his time in Asia since the early 70s, and since 2008 he has dedicated himself to capturing Tibetan wall murals in extraordinary, unprecedented detail and manipulated them digitally to produce life-size high-resolution images. The publisher Tashin has worked with Laird to produce a lavish new book in its fast sumo format. It comes complete with a stand designed by the architect Shigeru Ban, and all 998 copies are signed by the Dalai Lama. I spoke with Thomas about his project. Thomas, let's begin at the beginning. When did you see your first Tibetan mural? In 1986, I was amongst the first hundred foreigners to enter Tibet uh, in modern times, as soon as the Chinese government opened it for tourism. And as soon as I went to Lhasa, uh, I was looking at murals. Uh, Oddly enough, many of my friends in Kathmandu were art historians, Tibet translators. Uh, Many of my friends were Tibetan painters in Kathmandu. I've been living there for 25, 20 years when, when Tibet did open. So we went up, and I was immediately going through all the, many of the major sites that you see in the book. Uh, I was going and visiting them in 1986. And so tell me about the background to these murals. What were they made for, and who were they, who were they made for? Every picture tells a different story. Right. Uh, some of these were made by kings. Uh, some of these were made by for in a temple for, for and were intended... You know, to be at the front as as part of an altar. Uh, some of these were made for the exclusive private use for yoga and meditation practices of the Dalai Lama alone. Some were made for the use of kingdoms long gone, uh, like in Gugay. Uh It's it's a wide variety of stories. Uh, that's actually, I think, the most amazing thing about the book is that. Every chapter is opening a door into a room you've never even looked into. Quite, quite interesting that way. What's interesting is that when you go there, you don't see the murals. In most cases, even when you're there, you, you, it's dark. There's a sliding glass door in front of it. There's no windows. Uh, it's very, or it's very high. Maybe it's 10 feet in the air. The mural begins 10 feet in the air. And it extends up 20 feet, and the whole hallway is only 8 feet wide. So you're, you're peering up there, and you can't see anything except a very distorted image of it. Uh, so in many cases, pillars, distortion, lighting. My job was to make the invisible visible. Do you see yourself as an expert in these murals, or do you see yourself as documenting them? I am very grateful to my friends who are world-class experts. Heather Stoddard, Bob Thurman, Jakob Winkler, Ian Alsop, Jeff Watt. I mean, people have been educating me about these murals for decades. Uh, and I'm a, I'm a very good parrot. When you have, when you put me in front of an image and you tell me a story about it, I remember. So everything I'm going to tell you today about the content, someone taught me. 
and I've taken it in and uh, I, I put it out for you. So in a sense, you're hearing a compressed version of what some of the greatest experts have to say. So, but no, I can't claim ownership, authorship. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a talented minor bird. <laughs> so tell me, what, what is in these murals then? As you say, we're talking more than 200. They're very diverse. But can you give us this flavor of what features in these, in terms of imagery? The most famous of these murals are the murals from the Dalai Lama's private yoga meditation chapel on the third floor of the Lukong, on an island, in a pond, directly behind the Patala. That's one set of murals painted for the Dalai Lamas by the greatest artists of the time. Really assisting chapel is, is the parallel that you would use there. And when does it date from? Uh, those are around 1700. Uh, and then if you look at the oldest murals, in the oldest large format murals that are in the book, it's the first chapter, that's Dratang. And Dratang is really amazing because they were painted in 1080. Uh, so they're, and they're very big. But we don't really know, too, we know that perhaps they are the Buddhas of the Ten Directions, but there's no surviving captions on the walls. We know they were prob they were painted by a specific uh, set of people. It's it's mentioned in the book. Um, the Lama who founded this temple in 1080, the the teachers there, they they did it. But we don't know nearly as much about the origins of that as we do, for example, for the Lukong. And then there's a set of murals in far western Tibet, in Guge and Toling, that are from the, you know, 13th, 12th, 13th, 14th century, uh, painted by the kings of Guge, and those were deeply who were deeply involved with uh, the arrival then of at Toling of Atisha from India, um, and then you have paintings from the Kumbum, the Gansai Kumbum, the largest surviving stupa in Tibet. It has 17 rooms. It's like seven stories high, 72 chapels, all filled, every wall painted, thousands of square feet, if not meters, um, all painted in 1427 by a named group of artists who actually sign their names down there beneath uh, and say things like, here, art, never before seen, you know, I mean, really very impressive. And that's all just before, what is that, before Columbus? Yeah. Uh, like the cover picture of Shakyamuni. Uh, that's from 1427, from the Kumbum. So many different murals, each one telling a different story. Now, because they are so large, it really makes sense to produce them in this sumo format because they are incredibly detailed, they're incredibly rich, uh, they're incredibly colourful, and in a way, to have smaller reproductions of them, you don't get that impact. Right. At the same time, it's it's been a tremendous feat for you to achieve that level of detail, isn't it, in photography? Yes. Can you tell us something about the sort of technical stretches you've had to make in order to to get these images? My friend, the photographer Mathieu Ricard, and he's also quite famous as a writer and a Buddhist monk, he translates for the Dalai Lama. I saw him last week in India when we were out there to give first copy to the Dalai Lama. And he said to me, Tom, what you've done is Herculean. Uh, because he knows these rooms are pitch black. And he knows they're often very narrow. So you really, to capture these images, to create these images. I don't take pictures. I make pictures. And to create these pictures, you, you have to break the laws of optics. 
I mean, this is post-photographic. This is fully embracing digital. Um, my job is not to change what is there with Photoshop. So many people ask that. Have you changed what was there with Photoshop? No. My job is to capture what's there with Photoshop. It's like asking, well, do you change a negative in a dark room? Well, yes, you turn it from a piece of plastic into a paper. I mean, yes, of course, there are transformations, but the motivation is always to show you what's there for the first time. Because the old photographs that you see of these images completely fail to capture the eyelashes on the Buddha. They completely fail to capture the color, the enormous color palette, the richness of this mineral palette, and the surface textures on these images. I mean, I go on and on about that because I've spent more times with these murals now than anyone except the people who painted them. Uh, I mean, literally, you know, one image might be a month of capture and render. So I'm in front of it eight hours a day for 30 days. And I'm finding things in there all the time that no one's ever seen before. So it's, it's, uh, it's an amazing journey. I would say that the technical journey for me as a photographer, uh, beginning as a news photographer and then moving into editorial photography. With this project, you know, there's a wonderful fusion of technique and passion. You know, I, I love these murals. I have a dialogue with these murals. And the only way I could develop that dialogue with them was through this multi-image capture technique. Uh, and, and it's a very moving when you're, as a photographer, I'm 65 now, I've been shooting since I was 12, you know, and as a photographer, when technique fuses with a love, with this deep passion, and you can feel these images moving from India through the minds of the Tibetans, artists, into my mind, onto those pages, and then from there into your mind, and then you can see those images going into the future for the first time. If I hadn't done this work, these images would not be going into the future. It's, that's an amazing experience. It's not, I am not a photographer. Uh, it's, it's something else. One of the things that strikes me as I'm talking to you is that because you're in a way gaining access to these images in a way that they've never been seen before, does that then massively affect the scholarship that can yes. emerge from it? Absolutely. So many things have already been found on these walls that no one knew previously. So, for example, in the Lukong, Jakob Winkler has written the captions for those murals. And early on, when I showed him life-size images, he discovered a name beside a slightly defaced portrait. You couldn't see the face. But the name specifically says it's the father of the sixth Dalai Lama. Well, if you have a portrait of the sixth Dalai Lama in a temple, you know it wasn't painted at the time of the fifth Dalai Lama. Right. And things like that. So you could so more more precise dating, and also what about iconography? Are there things in these pictures that that, that are challenging scholars to? No, uh, the the iconography of Tibet is, I think, pretty well known. It's laid out in texts. Almost all of the uh, icons that are in the book can be identified through textual references. That's not the surprise. The surprise is historic specific historic things. And, you know, for museums and collectors, one of the amazing things about this work is that the paintings are immovable. 
and we know exactly when they were made. Movable objects move around, and if they're not dated, we may have a hard time dating them. So this book makes the dating of movable objects uh, easier. It improves that. But, you know, more than any of that, it's the stories that Tibetans tell about these images that they told me in Tibet and that you read about in books. And the, there's, there's the storytelling, the narrative level here that's, that's really fascinating. Um, I, I, that has been one of the most moving parts of this, actually. Tell me about what you mean by that. You mean that, that there is a sort of legacy of these stories in the present day? So... You know, well, you may not know. I, I, I wrote A History of Tibet with the Dalai Lama. That was one of my earlier books. And it's published in 16 languages. It's called The Story of Tibet Conversations with the Dalai Lama. And during that, he said something to me. Two or three times, he said. I would ask him, when did you first hear of the Bodhisattva Chenrezig? Or when did you first hear of Guru Rinpoche? Uh, and he, these are famous historic figures. I mean, famous figures in Tibet. And he would say to me, Oh, I was, before I learned to read, I was standing in front of a mural and one monk told me the story. And by the second or third time he said that, I was like slapping my head. Oh my God, we've missed it. This is, you know, the, the locus. This is the talking wall. This is the center of the transmission. I'd been in Tibetan temples. I'd seen monks standing in front talking with them, but I hadn't seen monks standing in front of those walls over the last thousand years. I only saw that one day. So I didn't understand that that was a chain going back through time. And when His Holiness said that to me, it was really moving because I knew right then what the next book was. I mean, that I was going to have to figure... I'd been shooting murals for decades, badly. Uh, uh, But that really forced me to address the technical issues. It forced me to widen my view of what murals there were surviving in Tibet. It forced me to listen more carefully to what Tibetans were telling me. You know, if you have a child or an aging parent, you know, they may tell you something about their discomfort or happiness, and you don't hear it. You're not paying enough attention. The murals were like that for me. They, they suddenly one day I heard them speak and that's an amazing experience. So tell me about your, your connection to the Dalai Lama because as you say you, you, you've done this book with him but also crucially you showed some of these murals to him for the first time. So mm-hmm. he, the, right. there, were, there, were, there were murals that were created for the Dalai Lama that he has never seen and it was you that brought them to him. Tell me about that experience. Well, I had been trying to make these images of whole wall murals for some time. So I began photographing them on slides in the 1980s and 90s. And then when I saw the Epson 11880 printer around 2008 or so, I realized, oh, I can now, if I can merge these, I could scan those slides and merge them. I could print them as a single image on, on a fine art you know, piece of paper. Um, so I began trying to merge them, and I created one from Dratong on my own. And then I went to Vancouver and worked with some friends there, Kiku Hawks and Somerville. And we did some beautiful work together where we scanned the images, and we merged them together, and we printed them out. And I took that first print of a whole Tibetan wall mural 
uh, to the Dalai Lama to show it to him. I'd done the book with him, so I had contact with his office. And when I, I emailed them and I said, you know, I've, I've got this mural from the Lukong that His Holiness has never seen. Perhaps he'd like to see it. And they said, yes, uh, and meet us in Santa Barbara on X date at X time. And so I showed up and rolled out the canvas and His Holiness walked in. And immediately we were in Tibet. And he walked up to the wall, uh, just like his teachers had done to him, and started telling stories. Uh, it was really, and in, at that moment, you feel like you're entering a spring. You're like going into a pool of water with him. You know, it's a really, and you realize that pool of water is ancient. And you're, it's a marvelous feeling. Uh, he, those particular murals, the Lukong murals, or something he would have seen later on, it's teachings, Dzogchen, Dzogchen teachings, that he would not have been given until he was in his 30s. And as it turns out, his teachers just didn't give him those initiations until after he got to India. So he'd never seen them. He knew the temple. He lived in the Patala. He looked down on the temple every day. He knew how many birds were landing on the pond. As He had a telescope. He counted the birds. But he didn't. He never saw the murals. And so it was, he was very excited to see them. And he immediately said, ah, now, the meaning. And so when we were finished, he said, very important work, you know. And so I, at that point, I really, I knew I was on the right path. I also knew that scanning the old slides was not going to cut it. I was going to have to go back and reshoot in digital, um, which was painful, I'd hoped to do it easily, <laughs> but it wasn't going to happen. So that's when I started going back in 2009 and shoot. Most of the images in the book are digital. There are a few from the celluloid era, uh, but nearly everything is digital. I'm intrigued by this idea that in working out how to do that, you looked at some of the large-scale art photography that was happening from the 80s onwards, and we're talking about people like Andreas Gursky in, in Germany and Jeff Wall, Canadian artist. Jeff Wall, Vancouver. So when I was in Vancouver working with my friends, they were showing me the, the, the wall pictures. And then when I saw Gursky's work, and I realized with both of them, this is multi-image. We're creating things here. This is post-photographic. We're using a, a camera as a brush. We're creating images. And there's a tremendous freedom when you realize that. You know, you've been trapped within a single frame your whole life trying to tell stories with a single frame and afraid to change anything. You know, you, you, you didn't feel you had the authorship to do that, right? And suddenly I realized I'm free. <laughs> you know, I, I, if I need to capture three or four images of a single area here, one for the blacks, one for the golds, I can do that. You know, if people want to talk about how he changed the murals, come. Come to the, come to my computer. I'll show you these images in the raw format. And you really don't see very much. Um, it, it's by working with these that you can excavate the colors that are there. It's funny because it's, it's about as far away from a lot of people's perception of photography as being Cartier Bresson's decisive moment. Isn't right. It? I'm not a, a Boisson. A Boisson did incredible work and lots of my friends do fantastic moment, you know, street photography. And I love that. But I don't think I'll ever be as good at that as Cartier-Boisson. Whereas Cartier couldn't do what I'm doing. And I don't, again, I, it's just, it's a fact. Technically, he found the Leica 
and could do something that no one had done before. I found multi-image capture and could do something that no one could do before. And that's so exciting. As a contemporary American artist, for me, that discovery was so liberating and brought so much joy to my life so I could share history and have this dialogue with this ancient art and share it with the world. I, I feel very blessed and very lucky to that this technology came along, that my life had been devoted to Tibetan arts and histories for decades before that, and that this magic moment in my life could happen. So the book's finished. It's in front of us now. Is the project still ongoing or is this a full stop on the murals for you for now? I'll never be finished with uh, Himalayan murals. Um, I, I, there are definitely more murals I want to shoot uh, in India, Nepal, there's de- and Bhutan. Uh, there's definitely more murals I'd love to shoot. It's a whole body of work uh, out there in the wild that we truly do need to capture as soon as we can. So much energy and money and attention is devoted for to tame art, art in museums, the most protected place in the world. What do we care about? Do we care about atoms or art? And wild art, the majority of human art, is out in the wild. It's completely unprotected, as we saw with Bamiyan. And I just feel a tremendous um, passion to do something about that as much as I can until I die. I'd love to be working on this at the moment that I die. Thomas, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Murals of Tibet, published by Tashin, is out now for those of you who can afford it. The Sumo Collector's Edition, signed by the Dalai Lama, cost £9,500, and two special art versions, in addition of 40 each, come with a vast photographic print. They will set you back £22,500. Now, the Chicago-based artist Michael Rakowitz has recently had a hugely successful and acclaimed retrospective exhibition at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago. He's just arrived in London for the installation of The Invisible Enemy Should Not Exist, his sculpture for the 4th Plinth Commission here in Trafalgar Square. The work recreates an ancient Assyrian winged bull with a human head, recently destroyed by Islamic State in Iraq. But this is no simple reconstruction. The sculpture wears an armour made from cans of date syrup, produced in Iraq today. And I'm going round the corner, beneath the plinth, to talk to him now. Michael, we're standing in front of the fourth plinth when it's empty, which I think is quite an interesting moment to begin, because, of course, this is what you were faced with when you had to decide what you were going to do when you were invited to make a proposal. So what went through your mind when you were approached? Uh... Well, the first thing that went through my mind was that I was not going to be able to do the thing that I felt was the most kind of like natural for me, which was to do something to disperse the plinth into the people in the city. And um, Anthony Gormley did that so beautifully with one another. So the idea of doing a participatory work on on the plinth itself seemed uh, a bit uh, redundant. Um, and uh, And so with this kind of like natural um, direction that I have when working in public space uh, kind of n- uh, negated, I guess. Uh, it, it, it was um, a kind of uh, just close look at the blueprints that they sent along with the nomination 
um, where I saw that the plinth was exactly 14 feet long. And at the time, in my studio, I had all these printouts of the Lamassu, um, this winged colossus that stood at the entrance of the Nurgle Gate in Nineveh and had been destroyed in 2015 by uh, ISIS. I had the diagrams of all of that out in front of me because as part of this ongoing project called The Invisible Enemy Should Not Exist, uh, the idea was going to be that I was uh, now going to start also reconstructing those artifacts that were destroyed. So in rebuilding this this Lamassu um, that was in, in uh, Nineveh, uh, the project, The Invisible Enemy Should Not Exist, then extended beyond 2003 and the looting of the Iraq Museum, but also addressed this continuation of the Iraq War for the Iraqi people, where there's been a, a continued um, destruction of cultural patrimony at places uh, in the north and, um, and outside Baghdad. And, and it, the remarkable fact was that the Lamassu in Nineveh was itself 14 feet long, is that correct? Exactly, yeah. Sorry, I didn't get to that point as clearly <laughs> as I'd like to. Yeah, so seeing that both the Lamassu was 14 feet long and that the plinth itself was 14 feet long, it felt like, what else would I do? Um, I was, I've been immersed in this ongoing project for the past 10 years to reconstruct the more than 7,000 artifacts that are still at large, from the Iraq Museum, but now, unfortunately, it's grown to include those other sites um, that have been uh, ransacked um, since 2015. And so the, um, the other nice serendipitous kind of quality to it is that it's not just the length of the, um, of the plinth, but it's also the time period in which the plinth was built. So in the early 1840s is when this plinth gets constructed, and it's supposed to accommodate a statue of King William, which uh, the city of London ends up not being able to afford. So that sculpture kind of disappears into the ether. And then it's eight years later, in 1849, when another British explorer or archaeologist, uh, Austin Henry Layard, is uncovering this sculpture that disappeared in the sands of Nineveh. Um, and so seeing the disappearance and then reappearance of sculpture in that decade and then thinking about these questions of disappearance and reappearance made this particular stanchion a kind of excellent intersection. And then, of course, the site itself you know, allows for the work to have a a charge that it doesn't always have when it's in a museum or gallery setting. Now tell me about the armour that you're, you're giving this Lamassu. It's made from date syrup cans. Can you explain the significance of dates and date syrup? Yeah, well, the, the, the material culture of the project, uh, since I began it in 2006, um, is uh, to use the detritus of uh, Middle Eastern communities in the United States, you know, this trace of a cultural visibility. And it's also, so it's the packaging of Middle Eastern food, foodstuffs, but it's also the Arabic-English newspapers that are given away to, for free to newly arrived immigrants that are coming from uh, places like Mosul recently or Shaklawa in the north of Iraq. And, um, and so in translating this project uh, for the fourth plinth and being in public space, 
clearly I couldn't use these papier-mâché materials um, where most of all the other artworks have been uh, shown indoors in you know climate-controlled museum environments. And so being aware of that, um, I started to think back to what it was that made me do that project in the first place. And that's where two of my projects start to intersect. So in 2006, I did a project called Return where I imported Iraqi dates to the U.S., for the first time in uh, over three decades. And it, it was basically me reopening my grandfather's import-export company. And um, those dates end up traveling a really convoluted and tragic route that mirrors the route of Iraqi refugees at that time. Um, and so while I was running this store empty of Iraqi dates, I was um, offering these products that people in the, the import community would tell me that even though this can of date syrup says that it's product of Lebanon, it's actually date syrup that's made in Iraq, canned in Syria, and then labeled in Lebanon, and this was the way that the Iraqis had um, circumvented the sanctions. And that these were practices that were still in place because even after the normalization of relations and the lifting of the sanctions, anything that bore uh, Iraq as the country of origin was uh, was seen as potentially dangerous, and um, and the uh, places like Homeland Security and U.S. Customs and Border Patrol would put these tariffs on it, which made it really bad business for importers. But I knew that it could be good art, so that's why I decided to try to import these Iraqi dates. But these the graphics on these packages of the date syrup or these cans of the date syrup were really beautiful, and, uh, and there were also date cookies called mamul uh, that were listed as having uh, selected Saudi dates but everybody knew that it was made from Iraqi dates so here was a material that could not announce its provenance freely uh, because it was scared to reveal where it was from so it was almost like suffering xenophobia um, but then I started to think okay well that's the material that these artifacts should be made out of because they should come back not as uh, exact replicas, which would be fakes, but as ghosts that haunt and appear mutated. So when I was thinking about how to translate those decisions into, you know, something in the outdoors to withstand the English weather, uh, the date syrup tins were, you know, uh, the obvious choice. And um, the way that those tins are made, it's with tin plate steel, so it's food grade, it doesn't rust very easily. And uh, the labels are printed with metal lithography directly onto the can, so there's no peel-off labels or anything. So it was perfect in terms of a material choice where it could appear like an armor, but also still has a kind of fragile handmade quality to it. Um, but then there's also this nice thing that it does where it collapses several different um, um, tragedies into itself. You have the the cultural tragedy with the looting and destruction of the artifacts, which of course it runs side by side with the human tragedy, but then the environmental tragedy, which is this disappearance of uh, Iraqi dates um, because the landscape suffered so uh, severely during the war. And culturally they're important too, because you told me that that, that their sweetness was symbolic for, chi for, for a, a child that had been born, for, for instance. Yeah, in many places in Iraq, it's traditional to put a date into the mouth of a newborn baby so its first taste of life is sweet. And um, uh, for 
for Iraqi Jews, for instance, when you make meals around Rosh Hashanah for the New Year, uh, you use date syrup to sweeten everything, you know, because it's uh, supposed to be a harbinger of good things to come. So, in a sense, what your what this sculpture will be is a kind of um, story right across a very long period of time. Yeah, it, it's not just the past, but it's the past uh, being um, constructed in the present, looking towards the future. Um, there should not be a sanitizing of just how um, much the Iraqi people have suffered. And, uh, and, it, and it is very much as a result of, of the wars, the cons- consecutive wars, but also the ultimate dehumanization um, of the Iraqi people and its culture uh, from 2003 onward. And that, for me, needs to be unflinchingly present in speaking about something that can never be reconstructed and uh, brought back to life fully. Um, it's supposed to push against, you know, a little bit this tendency towards thinking that anything can be replicated as long as you 3D scan it. But I've said it many times before, when books burn, people burn usually alongside them. And um, you can't 3D print the people who lose their lives uh, along with the cultural heritage that suffers. That's right. So, so in, in other words, what you're saying is, it, for instance, we, there was a reconstruction of the Palmyra Arch here in Trafalgar Square, but that somehow is an, that's inadequate at expressing the, the, the full tragedy of what's happening alongside these objects being, dis, being destroyed. Right. Like I said, an exacting replica is a fake, and I'm interested in making ghosts that haunt spaces. And to be able to haunt a space like Trafalgar Square is significant. It will be with its back to a museum, not walking into the museum, but walking away from it, looking southeast uh, towards the Foreign Office and towards Parliament, but also towards Nineveh, southeast looking back towards Nineveh in the hopes that it may too return one day. Um, so it holds all of those things, hopefully, in, in, in its materiality, in its presence, and it also pushes up against um, the other monuments that are in this square, but also um, resonates with them. The, uh, the way that the cannons from the Royal George were melted down to make um, the lions, um, you know, these date syrup cans have a conversation with that. That's a weapon of war. This is a victim of war. It's arriving at a moment when public sculpture is under so much scrutiny, particularly with what's been happening with the Confederate statues in the U.S., has that inflected how you've gone about making the sculpture, thinking about the sculpture at all? Oh, I, I absolutely think about those things, but, you know, I have to thank, you know, amazing artists that I studied with, you know, like Krzysztof Wodichko, who um, has been thinking about that his whole career. And so when he started doing these projections on buildings in uh, the 1980s, it was about the the you know uh resurrecting public art and its ability to speak to its populace that you know these were uh uh you know monuments to to people that no longer communicated to its public and its public started stopped communicating with those figures and um and it was a way of of creating uh a kind of really 
rich visual crisis in that space where the monument starts speaking back. So, for instance, the proposal for the homeless projection that he had for Union Square in New York City, it's it's an equestrian statue of George Washington where the projection more or less turns George Washington into um, a homeless veteran in a wheelchair uh, not on a, and the horse becomes basically the wheelchair and instead of holding up you know his hand in glory he's holding up uh, his hand with a squeegee you know looking to you know wipe somebody's windshield so it it allows for those um, you know uh, uh, figures of authority to be challenged and to de-author- be deauthorized um, and so I think, you know, I've, I've always been thinking about that, especially when it comes to monuments, but this is the very first project I'm actually doing on a plinth. And a plinth has been very much a part of the discussion of public statuary, you know, since those, uh, since those, those statues of Lenin came down in Eastern Europe. And that was the, you know, media image that the coalition was trying to emulate when, when they were tearing down those statues of Saddam with reckless abandon in places like Firdos Square in, in Baghdad, which coincidentally happened the day before the Iraq Museum was looted. Um, and now when you see these statues being pulled down cathartically in places in the American South, um, you know, taking criminals off their pedestals, I think that that impulse is um, is basically a good one, but I also uh, you know wonder about you know what it means for a city to keep its you know the traces of problems and failures alive and to make them visible. And so I wonder if there are other ways of doing it where where there's counter monuments that, that get put up next to those uh, pieces. Um, so that you create those spaces of tension and so that nobody can come along and say that these things never happened. Um, you know, in some ways, I think those monuments become admonishments, you know, and so it's important for those things to be visible. But I also speak as somebody who is not directly traumatized or victimized by those statues. And so I think it's the prerogative of those communities and those people that live in those spaces to make those decisions. I mean, you know, I saw a little bit of a video of the thumb coming down, you know, and seeing the thumb coming down off the pedestal. This is it David, was like, we should say this yeah, is David Strickley's yeah, thumb, which, which yeah. was the sculpture on the fourth print just before you. Yeah, right, yeah. which I loved. I mean, you know, that, that sculpture, you know, had its own context when it went up and then it gained a whole other context when you looked at it in the in, in, in amidst the sea of people during protests around Brexit and everything else. You know, it became this really sardonic kind of, uh, you know, way to go. Uh, and, and I think that there's, um, you know, there's, a, there was a, even a sadness in my heart when I saw that statue coming down saying that, well, it deserved better, right? You know, <laughs> but, but, it, you know, there's, there's, um, there's, there's a constant kind of question about whether or not public art should be permanent. Um, that's always in the back of my mind. And so that's one of the reasons why I think the Fourth Plinth program is, is, is excellent, is that it, it embraces the, the notion of um, the ephemeral uh, temporality and understanding that a city is not static in the way that it looks at things or remembers things. And so in this sense, I think we may be looking to- towards a very hopeful future of the way that we mem- uh, memorialize or monumentalize and, t- and think about things 
not being permanent and static, but is something that's constantly moving. I want to ask you about the origin story of this work, but going a very long way back, which is when you came to Britain as a child and you saw Lamassu in the British Museum. And in a, in a way, this, this made quite an impact on not just your life, but your art, right? For sure. Um, when I visited here at the age of 10, it was just two months after my grandmother had passed away. Um, and she, we lived in her house with her in Great Neck, New York. And uh, the entire house had been filled by her and my grandfather with whatever it was that they could get out of Iraq with them when they left in the 40s. And, uh, you know, they were adamant about preserving... Iraq, uh, even even though you know through their heartbreak of leaving, and we grew up around all those things. But most importantly, we grew up around my grandparents. And so when my grandmother died, it felt like a link to that past uh, had died too. Uh, we came to London to visit my uncle Nyazi and my auntie Tifa, uh, who live or lived in Belgravia, and um, and so my mother took us, you know, to reconnect with family from Baghdad because they had actually made the decision to move here uh, when my grandparents made the decision to move to the U.S. And um, and we went to the British Museum and we passed by those Lamassu and it was incredible, you know, seeing those Lamassu from Khorsabad and uh, I'd never seen anything like it. You know, the fifth leg, um, uh, you know, kind of phenomena was explained to me that, you know, they rendered four legs uh, on the side and then two legs on the front because you're supposed to see it fully from either side. And so you end up with this incredible uh, mutant creature. So we went into the adjacent room, which um, had the Assyrian lion hunt, uh, the, the lion hunt of Ashurbanipal. Uh, and I remember sitting on the benches in the middle of that room and my mother pointing out, you know, that each relief was a sequential scene. And she explained to me, this is the first comic book ever. This was made in the place where your grandmother and me are from. And so that was this magical reconnection with Iraq, but it was also through sculpture, through statuary, and through history and pop culture, you know. And, um, and so that was a really important primal scene, you know, in my life as an artist and being able to kind of come back here uh, to London, you know, uh, some 34 years later uh, and to know that my parents are, are coming to celebrate the unveiling with me is, um, is a really beautiful, I don't want to say full circle because everything has been much more convoluted and circuitous than a circle but it really does kind of like bring things into a very nice um you know bookend michael thank you so much thank you michael rakowitz is the invisible enemy should not exist is unveiled in trafalgar square next week and will be in place for two years and that's all for this podcast. You can tell us what you think on Twitter and indeed Facebook, if any of you are still on it, at The Art Newspaper. You can also see our updates on Instagram at theartnewspaper.official. Next week, we'll be discussing a new book on Leonardo da Vinci and celebrating the 300th edition of The Art Newspaper. We hope to see you then. Thanks for listening.